guys. Good morning. Hi there. Hi there. Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right, I have to answer a question that several of you asked me when I was hanging about. Uh, so you said, hey, I keep, I keep hearing you talk about this wife, but you don't wear a wedding ring. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Within the first six months of marriage, I lost my wedding ring. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Big no-no. So uh, as a guy who did that, I said, look, I'll make it up to you. I'll get it tattooed on me. You are forever on my skin, love, right? That's amazing. And then I started buying those silicone rings, and now I've basically bought 20 of those and lost those. And so I just kind of don't wear a ring and hope that people understand that, yes, I'm still married even when you can't see the tattoo <laughs> on my finger because I am a delinquent with my rings. I just can't, I can't, I don't even know where they go. There's like a ring monster in my house that just eats them. So I, that, that's the answer to your question. Yes, I'm married. Yes, she's real. I'm not making her up. <laughs> you saw her picture. That wasn't just a stand-in. Uh, and uh, she, you know, she's forgiven me for losing my ring. It's, honestly, it's a sad thing. But how are you guys doing? Are you guys doing good? Yeah? Yeah? I want you to look at the person next to you and just say, hey, you're still in the mountains. And say, hey, that's pretty cool. Because you are in the mountains. You get to be here. You don't have to be at school this week. You get to be here. This is awesome, guys. What a privilege. What's that? Well, that's all right. One test for a week in the mountains? Come on. I'll take that. I'll take your test for you, okay? Just mail it to me at, uh, at uh, thewhitehouse.com. I don't know. Uh, just email it to me. Yeah. At um, I don't take tests.org. And uh, I'll come back right back to you. So, uh, hey, guys, today we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. If you like Nocturne Libre, that is my, <laughs> one of my favorite movies, the nitty-gritty. If you haven't seen it, do so. It's amazing. And uh, last night, as you remember, probably, we finished out in John 7. So if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 7, we're still trucking along, skipping those rocks along the waters of John, we finished by asking a very important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And his teaching is not easy. Remember, people were called to decide who he was. And he wasn't popular with everyone, remember, right? So he, uh, he keeps kind of breaking this thing, these rules that they had called the Sabbath rules. And these religious people, these rulers, they did not like that. And uh, some people were already seeking to kill him. John chapter 7, verse 1 starts like this. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews there were seeking to kill him. So at this point, he had disrupted enough of their system, their way of life, their way of thinking that they actually wanted to put him to death. But others believed. As you remember, the woman at the well, people like her, the pools of Bethesda, the man who healed, they believed. John chapter 7, verse 31 says, but many in the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ, when the Messiah the rescuer comes. He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? They're saying, what more signs do you need than the things this man is doing? 
We believe he is who he says he is. And much as the same today, people were divided on who he is. Some look at the life and teachings of Jesus today with what we would call scorn. They don't even want to associate with him. They don't want anything to do with him. Maybe they've had bad experiences with people who claim him. I mean, I run into that all the time as a pastor, right? People, I say, I tell somebody I'm a pastor, it's like a curse word to them. And they're like, oh, you know, I had a bad experience. And the question, though, is, well, did you have a bad experience with Jesus? Who is he to you? And his followers were not perfect. And that's what we're going to talk about today, right? As the video said, sin. What is sin? How do we deal with it? And others in the life of Jesus, they experienced life and joy. And we're going to meet some of those people who get physical freedom and redemption in Jesus. So Jesus is often called a savior, right? Rescuer, savior, Messiah. But let me ask you this question, guys. What do we need to be saved from? Sin. You need to get saved, right? You need, y'all need Jesus. That's what people say. But saved from what and to what? So, this morning we're going to be talking about sin, as you probably put together. And these things, I mean, sin, it's like the thing that's there and sticks around, right? Too long at the party. Um, and it's there from a really early age. I mean, believe me, I have a four-year-old, and he's already in a place where he can look me straight in the eyes and lie to me. No, I didn't do that thing. Uh, son, I saw you do that thing. The other day, he loves collecting rocks. He loves collecting rocks. His pockets are like this, full of rocks. And I mean, obviously, you bring a bunch of dirt and rocks in the house, not great for the environment of a house. And he just puts them everywhere. So we've made rules, right? We have a little basket on the front porch. This is your rocks basket. When it gets full, we can go plant them somewhere else for another kid. But the other day, he walks in the house with pants like this. I say, hey, son, uh, do you have rocks in your pocket? He's like, no. Nah. <laughs> no. This? this? No. <laughs> That's not rocks. I said, well, let me see your hands. He comes out. Just full of rocks. I'm sorry, Dad. You know, immediately repenting, knew what he did. But sin, thou shalt not sin, you shall not lie. I mean, at four years old, this is just like part of who he is, right? I remember, I mean, my thing as a kid, I don't know why, I loved stealing. I seriously, I was like, as a kid, my mom would always be like checking my pockets because she'd be like, what did you take from this store, son? And I don't know why, I just, it was part, of, that was my thing as a kid. That was my sin proclivity. Uh, one time uh, I went to, we have Save Mart. You guys have Save Mart in Ventura? I think it's like a, um, a Safeway or thing, thing. Yeah, okay. So I was in a Save Mart and I just started straight, I had shorts on and tidy whities as a little kid, right? I was probably about six or seven. I just started just jamming strawberries in my underwear. <laughs> just doing it. And I was like, there's no way this could go wrong, <laughs> right? And so we're walking around the store. I got underwear full of strawberries. And obviously you start walking, they start moving their way down. And then I just got little, uh, you know, my legs turned into strawberry mashers and literally just red juice coming down my legs. And my sister behind me goes, he's pooping blood. 
my mom mortified, realizing I have pockets full of this candy from the little bin and all this. She's like, oh, I wasn't watching my little klepto son again, right? I'm just shoving strawberries. That's like, why did I do that, right? My mom would have gotten me strawberries if I had asked for them. But I said, I'm going to take these for myself. I'm going to take something that doesn't belong to me. That was just, nobody had to teach me that. It was a part of me in that moment. And we are in John chapter 8. We're going to be uh, encountering two, two different uh, group of people and a person who are both caught in the throes of sin. And Jesus deals with both of them very differently. So in John chapter 8, we meet what, we'd call, what the Bible calls the woman caught in adultery and the, women, and the men who caught her. So if you look at John chapter 8, verse 2, it starts with, Early in the morning, he, being Jesus, came to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes, the Pharisees, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst of all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, to kill her, So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So I have a few questions right away. How did they catch her in the very act? Seems like a setup, right? It's not, I mean, first of all, to be caught in the middle of adultery, it's incredibly embarrassing. It's incredibly intimate and scary and to be ripped out of that situation. And secondly, where is the guy? Where is the guy? Imagine her humiliation when they rip her out of this situation and the guy who is just as much to blame in this situation is left behind not to blame. And they drag her, who knows what she's wearing, in this public religious place in the temple. And they use her as a prop to try and trap Jesus. See, by the letter of the law, right, the Old Testament, remember we talked about the law, they would be correct in stoning her, putting her to death. But by the letter of the law, the Old Testament says that the man deserves to die just as much as her. But they ignore that because they don't care about the law. They just want to take down Jesus, you see? And this is, this is a hard thing, Right? That, these, that God takes marriage so seriously that those who break that covenant of marriage would deserve to die, to intermingle souls in ways that are not supposed to be done. But I can like relate to this woman's story in some ways. I mean, I've been caught you know, publicly with strawberry legs in, a, in sort of a ridiculous way, but I remember in high school, um, so I didn't study for this te- uh, vocab test. It was like the big vocab test my junior year of English and I was like oh no what am I gonna do I sat down and the teacher on accident those of you who are teachers in here be like oh goodness but uh the teacher accidentally handed me the answer key (laughs) and uh we were doing scantrons you guys still do scantrons it's like fill out these bubbles and then they just put it in a machine and it says like here's the correct answer so that's what we were doing and they handed me the answer key and I was like I had a pretty messed up view of God in this place and I was like you are good. You do exist. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, I was like, all right, your boy's getting an A plus on this test, right? <laughs> so, uh, which, yeah, not a great uh, wise thing either. And so I just ended up, you know, marking everything right. 
I turned it in and I was like, slam dunk, God's taking care of me. You know, like I said, really bad view of God. And uh, my teacher, I tried to be sly about how, because you know, you turn in the scantron with all the bubbles, so then you turn in the key, that, which is the questions. I tried to be sly and kind of put it underneath. And then the teacher who, for some reason, wasn't sort of paying attention enough to hand me the actual answer key, paid attention enough to notice I was being weird about the way I put back the questions and pulled it out and said, in front of the whole class, Jordan Ho, you just cheated on my test. <laughs> and I, in that moment, poof, shame, right? And my sin, I didn't admit it. Oh my gosh. And then, <laughs> and my reaction was to get angry at her and be like, you handed it to me. It's your fault. And then, uh, so as you can imagine, that wouldn't have gone well. I said to the principal, all these things, pub you know, that was a public shaming moment for me. But I mean, that is such a fraction of what this woman would have felt. Such a, like a small, small fraction. And you may have like something you've done that's been brought to light, that's embarrassing to you. Maybe you've had things like that in your life that you have felt this like, oh no, everyone's looking at me. They know I did something wrong. They know I messed up. That's where she's at. They're trying to back Jesus in the corner and using this woman like an object lesson. They don't care about her, remember? Like the Star Wars guy, it's a trap, right? They're just trying to test him. It's a trap. See, if Jesus lets her go, they're gonna say, look, you're not holding to God's word. You don't believe scripture is true. You're not like, you're not with God in this. And they can accuse him of not actually being who he says he is. And if Jesus allows them to kill her, the crowd and the people will not actually see him as gracious. They'll see him as harsh, judgmental, one who just crushes. So they believe they've trapped him, right? And so what is Jesus's response? In John 8, verse six, second half, it just says, he doesn't just, all right, give me my podium. Here's going to be my recourse. I am going to have a giant speech that I give you about grace and truth. Here's what Jesus does. What does it say he does? He bent down and did what? And he just started writing in the ground. What a strange response. But Jesus, remember, he knows the hearts of men. I love it. He's just like, oh, all right, well. You asked for it. And he just starts writing in the dirt so that people could see. And we don't really know, right? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us what it was. Like, it could have been like the name of the guy who was with her that they're clearly ignoring by and ignoring the law themselves. The fact that they are sort of chauvinistic men that just want to use this woman, this woman for their own devices. Did he write down their own sins? Maybe women that they had had encounters of. And it's, it's so like, back in this time, it was not uncommon for men to commit adultery. And it was very rarely, if ever recorded, that they did actually kill people for this. So Jesus, in some way in writing, is exposing them. Regardless, it took the attention off the woman and towards him. And then the, the religious, they start, they start pressing him, right? In verses seven and eight. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them. So he takes a break in writing and he just says this. 
Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus says, and this is insane. This is crazy because they weren't expecting this. He says, yes, you may be right in stoning this woman, right? He doesn't deny that Moses' law calls for her death. He doesn't deny it. But as a perfect sinless one, he sets himself up as judge and arbiter. And he says, here is the sentence based on that. Those who would be without sin are the only ones allowed to punish sin. Here is the sin and here is the qualification for punishment. And then he goes back to writing. Just goes down, starts writing. Whatever he wrote, the response was undeniable. Verses nine through 11 then say, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, I want you guys to just picture this. This woman in her shame, in her anguish, picture in you the deepest, darkest thing that you think you could never tell anybody about. Picture in your own heart the stuff that you deal with, the mistakes you've made. Now picture somebody brought that to light in front of all the people who you definitely don't want to know about it. And one of those people is the sinless son of God. And what is he gonna do to you in this moment? So if he's the only one qualified for punishment, He's the only one in this situation who can actually throw the first stone. What does he do? Verse 10, he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Does no one condemn you? Jesus is the only one able to condemn with justified con condemnation. Says, grace to you. I give you grace. I do not condemn you. Picture yourself in this woman on the throes of death, not being sure if she's about to be put to death and publicly shamed in her death encountering this man who somehow has vanquished all of her foes with just words and writing in the sand, revealed in them their own dark brokenness and held up an ugly mirror to the religious elite and then defended you, someone who you felt like the darkest, dirtiest person in that place, lifts up your chin and says, I do not condemn you, but doesn't leave her there, right? It would be very nice for him to say, go, do whatever you want. Go, live the life that feels best. If it feels good, do it. How does he end? What does he say? What's the last line from verse 11? You guys can say it. From now on, sin no more. He gives her grace, but he Jesus will always lead with grace to those who are able and open to his grace 
He accepts you right where you're at, but he does not leave you there. He will then front with grace and give truth. He acknowledges her life of sin is destroying her. Go and sin no more. It's profound. The grace of God on display, but an acknowledgement of sin. So sin, let's talk about sin. Sin is not a uh, popular word, right? A lot of people don't like talking about sin. Um, But really, who did archery this week so far? Yeah? Okay. So sin, it's this Greek word harmartia, and it, it means simply to miss the mark. It's an archery term. Or to make your own mark and aim for that. See, there are sins of what we would call committing or commission, which would mean things you do that are committing sins, or sins of omission, things you do not do that you should have done that are sins. And simpler than that, guys, if you, if you grab onto one thing as a definition of sin, listen to this. Doing life without God. What we would call autonomy. And what the Bible calls doing life alone without God is living in the flesh. When the New Testament talks about the flesh, it's describing that part of us that just wants to do our own thing. Just wants to do your own thing. A hardness of heart towards the things of God that wants to do life on our own without God. What we want, not what God wants. Romans 8 describes it this way. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Friends, when you are not operating in the spirit, when you are not living life with God, you are operating in the flesh. Are you operating in the flesh? And if you have never trusted Christ with your life, if you've never made a commitment to follow him, then you are in the flesh. There are two roads. It is impossible to please God in the flesh. And even if you were in Christ, The crazy thing is there is still a battle. God allows us to not be sinless for the sake that we would still be dependent on him when that flesh rises up. He wants to do life with you, even in your imperfection, even when that flesh comes up and pushes you away from him. He wants you to come to him. There's a battle between God's spirit and the new birth the old flesh and the, and the new life in Christ that we experience often as believers. And guys, I don't say this to judge you. I don't say that you're either in the spirit or in the flesh under condemnation or under life. I don't say that without, like from some ivory tower where I'm without this. My journey is one of deep, deep brokenness. Like I told you a little bit about my life, but my dad left when I was two years old. And he did it in a bad way. He left me and my mom and my sister, who was severely disabled. And he left us in a place where my mom hadn't worked in years. 
And it does something to you when the, one of the two people who's supposed to be around and love you no matter what just says, I don't want you. And so I spent most of my life looking for people's approval and filling that hole that was created by that deep rejection with substances and people. And so I've dealt with addiction most of my life. And that nearly destroyed my marriage. I had to make deep choices at points in my life, whether or not I would give into the flesh and keep living in that, or I would choose life in Christ. I spent most of my life without Jesus, hoping that people would just love me. In every situation I was in, I was everybody's favorite person. I would be who you wanted me to be. I would be who you wanted me to be. And I would do whatever you asked of me, sin or not, uh, rebellious or not, lying or not, hiding from people, my friends, my family, exactly what I was doing because I simply wanted to be loved. And the rejection I'd experienced that was outside of myself led me to sin. It led me to cope with substances and people and you know, I always wanted girlfriends and things, people to be with me and affirm me. Always pushing the boundaries. It was a terrible way of life. And I say this, these things because it's the truth. In love, I want you to know the truth. And in some ways it's not totally your fault. I mean, you come about it naturally. In college, um, I was a biological scientist major. Uh, I know, left turn into ministry, but it was the right turn, but you know. And um, I had to take an epidemiology course. And epidemiology is the study of epidemics, which most people post-2020 should know what that word is. But basically, it's understanding of where do diseases come from, how do they spread, where it's, and they have this thing called patient zero, right? The first place that this disease arose from. And we can trace our sinful natures that we're born into back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. A single decision made by two different people to choose their own way, living life without God, apart from God, over living life with God. And sin, in that moment, enters the world. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. You see, we're sinners by deed. We sin, we do things that are sinful, but we're also sinners by nature. Uh, Psalm 51.5 says, behold, I was brought forth in sin, in iniquity, and in my sin, my mother conceived me. That's a hard truth from scripture. It's not a fun thing to preach for me, guys. And most people would say like, yeah, like I'm not that bad though. Like I'm not that guy, right? I haven't killed anybody. I'm not on death row. I haven't hurt anyone too bad. Yeah, but like what's the big deal? But Isaiah 64, six tells us for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And most of us, and that means all, guys. That doesn't mean just some. It means all. All of us. And it says that even our best deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. Because our sin has destroyed us. Ephesians 1 tells us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. So how bad is it? Well, simply put, guys, sin kills us. And sometimes that's physical, right? 
and impacts us all. Sometimes addiction leads to death. I had a wonderful friend growing up in my Christian high school who at one point, one thing led to another, one decision led to another, and ended up losing his life to addiction to drugs. That was a very physical outcome to his sin habits. Difficult place to be. As I spoke at his funeral, having to deal with the repercussions and the tears of that sin. But it also says that we are all born with that sinful nature dead inside. Our souls not able to rise from the dead on our own. Sin impacts us all. Like I told you, my father's sin, a decision to leave my family and be with other women, that deeply affected my life, right? The people around you. There's no one righteous, our scripture tells us, not one. No one is righteous, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is to miss God's mark of perfection, either deliberately or on accident. John 1, 1, 8 tells us that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know, most of us like to curb the edges of this hard truth and say that we're, we, like, we make a lot of mistakes, right? I make a lot of mistakes. And so, um, but the reality is the Bible doesn't call us mistakers. It calls us sinners. And that we are dead in our sin. And that's a hard truth. It may, but, but, but here, this may help you understand why you struggle even those who are in Christ, even those in those room who have said, I commit my life to Jesus, that might help you understand why that thing still you know, keeps sticking around, why you don't always do what you know is right. And so sin looks really difficult today, right? Sin, I mean, in your context, there's a lot of things. It distorts the truth around us. Uh, the Bible tells us that the, the, the other glasses that the world gives you in order to view things like yourself, your sexuality, your gender, your, you know, uh, your friendships, your relationships to others, those things, those are actually sinful glasses that the world puts on to see. You know, then, you know sin could look like a, um, you know, just spreading rumors, gossip, talking about people in ways that are not kind, pride to say maybe you're, you think you're better than other people. Addiction to things, looking at things on the internet that you should not do, that are not honoring to God, participating in bullying, all these things, right? Telling lies. The God of all truth is offended by lies. It starts in the heart and moves out and the consequences are dire. They're terrible because in Christ, if there's life outside of Christ, remember, Adam and Eve were ejected from perfection in the garden because of their sin. There's physical brokenness in the world around us. The Bible tells us that sin got into the earth and everything, corrupting creation, things like cancer, war, disease, violence. Creation itself is affected Spiritual death being the one that hits every human being. And oftentimes we deal with our sin in two different ways. We either tried to move towards the do what you want to do. Anything goes, just embrace it. Who cares? Doing life without God. 
Idolatry, the Bible calls that. Worshiping anything and everything and anyone except God. Or we move towards that we do what we should do. And maybe we think if we can avoid sin enough, God will love us. But we don't do the thing he asks us to, which is lean into him and walk with him in his grace and in his truth. That leads to things like moralism. These religious elite that we see, these are the moralists. We have it figured out. We can do this all on our own. And then we cover sin because it's still there, even if you're pretending like it's not. It's still there. It's stinking under that air freshener. And it leads to shame and guilt. And man, if anybody knew me, nobody would love me. I can't tell you how many times I've said that to myself. But none of us deal with the root issue of our sin when we do those things. Let's go back to the book of John. John chapter 9. There's a man born blind. Jesus heals him. He finds him. He spits in the ground to make clay. He places it on his eyes, which I think is an awesome thing. Like, Jesus didn't have to do that, but he does it. And in this moment, he works on the Sabbath again. (laughs) And these punk Pharisees, they're just mad that he did this. They don't care about the guy. They're like, why do you keep breaking our rules? So like before, they get mad. They get so angry at the man that, they, that he healed that they confront him. And when he stands up for Jesus, they actually kick him out of church. They kick him out of the synagogue. He's like, I know, I don't know who this guy is, but he, I couldn't see, you knew me. I'm Jerry, I've been hanging out on the street. You pass me, you give me money. I couldn't see it, now I can. And they're like, yeah, but he healed you on the Sabbath. Get out of here. So then we have this interaction where in verse 35 of John chapter nine, it says, Jesus heard that they put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He's saying, do you believe in me? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He actually worshiped him in the moment. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see, see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who are with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sins remain. We have two contrasting images here. The blind man who is healed and the Pharisees who are the accusers. The man born blind from birth who sees, but now physically and spiritually because Jesus has healed him in both ways. And then we see the Pharisees who have never been blind physically, but are still blind spiritually, dead in their sins. Think they have it all figured out. The difference, the blind man knows he needs Jesus. The blind man knows that he can't do it on his own and that he is in desperate need of a savior and that he has found him. So here's my question. Do you acknowledge the sin in your life? Do you acknowledge the mistakes, the things that have led you into the dark places? 
I mean, I told you, I've, I've had to wrestle hardcore with the sin in my life that has led to destruction. But in Christ, I have found hope. And my fears with this message, guys, is I don't want you to hear this and think without hope because we do have a gospel of hope. As you consider sin, remember this. 1 Timothy 2 says this, for there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. There is hope in our brokenness and our sin. We're gonna talk about that tonight. Let me pray. Father, you are Savior. You are Rescuer. Thank you for the revelation of our sins so that we might find life. And we only know what the good news is when we talk about the bad news. Our death in sin is bad news. But God, you give good news and your gospel is good news. We eagerly await the hope of our salvation and we thank you that there is hope in Christ in the brokenness of the world. See, there may be people in here, God, who actually I know there are people in here who other people's sin has touched. Maybe someone else's sin has hurt them. And God, I ask that they would find refuge in you. Father, there are those in here who, as I talk about sin, think of the things that lay secret in their hearts and feel guilt and shame. Lord, I ask that you would give them hope in you. And I pray, God, that we would be courageous enough to deal with all those things. Praise your name, Jesus.